0: So I had never heard of a Canada Goose jacket. I never heard of a Montclair jacket. Um I never heard of Golden Goose shoes. i never heard of Van Cleef. And I had definitely never, ever seen any kind of Cartier in my life.
1: I think is especially prevalent at Brown is this idea of, like, cosplaying poverty. I think, like, a lot of people at Brown, because their political v- beliefs are, like, more leftist, They feel like that doesn't align with their wealth. And so the way that they compromise between those two things is oftentimes by just pretending that they don't have wealth. And I think that that's the wrong solution.
2: The New York Times reported in 2017 that the median family income of a student at Brown was $204,200, the highest among all Ivy League institutions. Almost half of the student body fell within the top 5%. But Brown's reputation for being a school for the wealthy goes beyond just these statistics. In 2019, the Providence Journal reported on the infamous Granoff dinners, organized by Marty Granoff, a Brown trustee emeritus and donor. The invite-only event and guests included some of Brown's wealthiest and most well-connected students. Four years later, Carter Moyer, a Bruno Brief producer, spoke to students and professors about some of the ways in which class impacts admissions, academics, and social life on College Hill. My name is Matthias Gersberg. This is the Bruno Brief. I honestly was really not looking at Brown
0: before QuestBridge. And so QuestBridge kind of helped me open my eyes to the idea of to Brown. And since then, QuestBridge has given me a very strong community, not only here at Brown, but also at other like peer institutions.
3: That was T.K. Monford. He's a sophomore and a QuestBridge Scholar, a program which seeks to connect low-income and first-generation students with leading institutions of higher education. Last year, Monford attended the Third World Transition Program, or TWTP, a pre-orientation program for incoming first-year students that explores forces of systemic oppression and introduces students to available resources and support structures on campus.
0: TWTP was like a big moment for me and for like, a lot of my like friends, low-income, and students of color to um, get the opportunity to kind of feel like Brown is a place for us and a place that we're, we're welcomed at and wanted at. I would say overall Brown has been a pretty welcoming place, but I will say the wealth gap was probably one of the scariest things at the beginning because I realized that there are people here at school whose parents probably make more in a month than my mom would ever make in a year. I believe that Brown was founded to be a place that was not designed for me. It was designed to cater to wealthy white men, and I think that they are definitely remnants of that.
3: At Brown, Monford studies economics, but he said that he does so for very different reasons than many of his wealthy white classmates.
0: For me, I'm trying to create generational wealth and change, and I'm not trying to perpetuate a system that steps on other people. And I feel like as a low-income student, that that opportunity and that perception of like being in the evil finance room just doesn't apply the same way because of my lived experiences and the like the obstacles i've had to overcome already just to get here that so many other econ majors didn't face
3: i also spoke with david Rangel an assistant professor of education who researches the relationship between education and social inequality with a focus on race and ethnicity. He said being from a low-income background can create added pressures for students to succeed and affect how comfortable they are in the classroom.
1: Low-income students are less likely to visit office hours and engage faculty. If you're from a working class and poor background, you often believe that you got here as a trick. somehow you were able to fool the the admissions officers, not all of them, right? This is not a universal statement, but oftentimes like if you don't feel like you belong here, then if you struggle in your classes, you're doing poorly. The way you attribute doing poorly is not to the material being difficult, but it reconfirms your belief that you don't belong. So it impacts your help seeking.
0: I've honestly struggled a lot in my econ classes. I I really love the subject and I really think that's what I wanna do but it has not been easy. I've constantly felt like I'm behind or doing worse in my econ classes than so many of my other counterparts. And I think part of that is just preparation, comfortability in class, and just confidence and the ability to just exist in a space with other people that look like you. And like, I have similar experiences as you.
3: Here's Leo Corzo-Clark co-lead of Students for Educational Equities, Emissions and Access Team, talking about how one's high school experience can affect how prepared they feel for the academic culture at Brown. According to Corzo Clark, students that attend elite prep schools, such as the Wheeler School and Phillips Exeter Academy, are more prepared to ask for help at Brown. And these, these are these like elite uh, prep schools and boarding schools facilitate the student learning experience to mirror schools like Brown as much as possible. So students get here, they know what it's like to ask a professor for a letter of rec. They know what office hours are. They feel entitled to ask for a regrade, which is not something I knew existed uh, at my public school, but everyone seems to know uh, is a thing here.
0: My freshman year, I was very kind of disheartened. I I felt less than, I felt like my experience at Brown wasn't so out of the ordinary that I didn't want to talk about it. I I couldn't talk about my where I was at this summer. I can't talk about all the countries I visited. I couldn't talk about oh my god like I knows I know James like oh my god me and James went to school mm-hmm. together because no one from my school comes to a place like Brown.
3: Resource Generation at Brown is an organizing group that raises mutual aid redistribution funds from wealthier students to give to Brown students in need. They also host workshops to better identify, understand, and utilize privilege to improve their community. Here's Alec Lacerte, a Praxis coordinator for RG, talking about the group's mission.
1: Another thing that we try to do at RG is, like, get people to realize, like, no, like, you are, like, you actually are, like, in the top 10%, you know, if you're, um, like, XYZ, and I think that that's... Um, for a lot of people, it's like a, a shocking conversation
3: to have. Here's Simone Klein, a resource gen coordinator, describing the group a little further.
1: RG is a cross-class invitation and also the focus of praxis specifically is on organizing folks with class privilege. My ultimate hope is that like for folks that want to be a part of Praxis and may not be coming from class privilege, that they feel that they can be like heard and like use that space as a reflection space that is
3: generative. Lassert told me he feels that wealthy Brown students often try to hide or downplay their wealth in class privilege.
1: I think we could also speak more to this sort of this idea of cosplaying poverty at Brown. Just from my own experience, it's very common for people to, like, as I said, really not acknowledge their wealth. Everybody thrifts. They're like, you know, like, oh, like, I, like, can't spend money on dinner tonight.
2: Lasser also sees a conflict between the level of wealth at Brown and the university's
1: liberal political culture, which we discussed last week. When you look at the numbers, it, like, is really shocking. One of the most frustrating things about Brown is that, like, Brown is so, like, progressive. It really markets itself as this university for, like, like the people. Or, and yet nobody talks about wealth.
3: Students, including students for aid and minority admission, have historically advocated for need-blind admissions policies at the university, which we discussed in last week's episode. Brown was the last Ivy to adopt a need-blind admissions policy, doing so in 2003. Today, Students for Educational Equity works to center local public school students and community members while promoting educational equity in Providence. I spoke with C about how Brown can expand accessibility to students from less-privileged backgrounds and the ways in which wealth and class privilege can be felt in admissions.
2: Last year, SCE created an online financial aid guide that explains key terms and processes involved in applying for financial aid, such as how to fill out the CSS profile in FAFSA, or navigate special circumstances like those faced by international and undocumented students. The guide also walks through the financial aid appeals process, which Nianta Nepal, co-president of SEE and co-lead on SEE's admissions and access team, said is something many incoming students are not aware of. Here's Nepal talking about the beginnings of the project.
1: It was a lot of us like brainstorming what we would have wanted to see, what resource we wanted, would have wanted to have. We looked at a lot of other university like financial aid websites to see what they did well and what we could replicate. And we created it just as a way for students to be able to like access a more friendly, I guess, guide to financial aid.
3: Nepal said that one of C's main goals is pushing Brown's administration to invest more in the Providence community, particularly in its public school system. As a nonprofit institution, the university does not pay property taxes on its institutional properties, but Brown makes voluntary payments as part of a memorandum of understanding and a memorandum of agreement, both of which are currently being renegotiated. If Brown paid full taxes on all of the property it owns, the city would have received almost $50 million from the university in 2022. This past fiscal year, Brown paid $4.5 million to the city.
2: Nepal also noted a 2019 John Hopkins report on Providence Public Schools, which concluded that the district, where around 87% of students are economically disadvantaged and 90% are students of color, is significantly underfunded, under-resourced, and provides an exceptionally low level of academic instruction. Despite existing in the same city as Brown, Just under one-third of PPSD students enter four-year higher education institutions directly after graduation.
1: If you talk to Dean of Admissions about this or if you talk to other administrators about this, their usual go-to is um, it's too late by the time that we get to these students to let them in. So When Logan Powell says to me, like, we can't do intervention this late, I think about how this would be earlier intervention is people like admin advocating for early for Brown to pay their fair share so K-12 through education can be better in their hometown and they can accept more kids from Providence.
3: We reached out to the admissions office, but they were unable to provide a comment. On campus, Monford says there are many components of college life that some students might take for granted, but present barriers for low-income students, such as paying for laundry or getting a meal on Thayer Street after many of the dining halls on campus have closed. Yet, he feels that there are ways in which undocumented, first-generation, and low-income students are supported by one another as well as by university programs. I would also just like say shout out Brown for like, um, their Youth Funds
0: account and profile. I think U funds has been an amazing resource for low income students, in particular, for me who came from Georgia and did not own any winter clothes or any real like winter jackets or winter boots. I really relied on youth funds my freshman year to help me uh, get money to do to get money to go buy the like winter jackets and winter boots. Uh, so like youth funds has in particular been really really impactful. And I just want all like low income students that are listening to this to know that their value, their story is important and not to feel silence. Find a space where you feel like you can share that because your your story and how you got here is probably more impactful than you'll ever realize.
2: That's it for this week's episode of The Bruno Brief. Tune in next week to hear from Bruno Brief producers Elize Baraket and Samantha Renzulli about Brown's reputation as the happy Ivy. This episode was produced by Liana Hagis, Vin Kirkpatrick, Elise Baraket, Samantha Renzulli, Daphne Dolzneski, Sonia McNatt, Olivia Tingley-Kelly, Jacob Smolin, Carter Moyer, and me, Matthias Gersberg. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to The Bruno Brief and leave a review.